Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hill Spring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. We are walking with Jesus on this journey as we kind of walk through the gospel of Mark and we're just kind of working through these stories and my goal, my, kind of my hope for you is that we see ourselves sometimes in these, in these moments. Like we can relate to their stress, we can relate to their fears and we see Jesus working in their lives even though he was walking and talking amongst them that our, our goal would be that in our stress and our fears that we could see Jesus and specifically the Holy Spirit, his spirit walking and working with us. So if you got your Bible, we're gonna go to Mark's fifth chapter. If you don't have it, don't worry, we'll put it up on the screen. And this is kind of an interesting section of Mark's gospel, specifically the end of Mark four and into Mark chapter five. And it's actually a very powerful section of his gospel because Mark is revealing just the power of Jesus, the power that he has and what he has power over. And I It doesn't necessarily point to where we're going today, but I thought, man, this is too good to just pass up because in Mark chapter four, we see Jesus calmed a storm. So in that, we see that Jesus has power over the elements, over the wind, over the rain, over the waves. There's a prophetic psalm in Psalm 89 that says, you, God, you alone rule over the oceans. Lord, you subdue the storm-tossed waves. That psalm was written hundreds before Jesus ever walked in order to point to the day that when Jesus did say, peace be still, and the elements were calmed, that only God can do that. And it was a prophetic psalm to say that Jesus is God. And then we see that Jesus has power over demons. And we see stories where he takes demons head on and he casts out demons. And Jesus, God has power, nothing to be scared of. God has authority over all of that. And then at first reading today's story, it's gonna feel like two stories. And I, I kept trying to separate it and like preach it as two different stories. But you're gonna see it really is one story weaved and threaded together. And there's a couple of different plot lines that are developing. We're gonna meet a couple of different characters. But what you're gonna see out of this story today is that Jesus has power over disease. He truly can heal, even still today. I know sometimes he says yes, I know sometimes he says no, but we just gotta have faith that Jesus has power over disease. Amen, everybody? And then Jesus has power over death. In this story today, you're gonna see one of the first of three people that Jesus brings back to life, that he resurrects from the dead, and you're gonna see the first one of that. So uh, if you got your Bible, Mark chapter five, we'll start in verse 21. It says, Jesus got into the boat Again, like I don't know about you, but it's like he going back and forth and back and forth on this lake and he went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. And so if you recall from last week when he cast the demon out of the dude and sent it into the, the pigs, the crowd asked him to leave. So he does, he gets in the boat and he leaves, goes to the other side of the lake and of course there's a crowd waiting for him. Verse 22, then a leader of a local synagogue, lock that in, a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus, arrived, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said. Please come lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So this first story that's kind of developing out of this duo of of plots that will do the first one is about a guy who's a leader of the local synagogue. His name's Jairus, okay? He is a man of influence, He has an important position. That's an important position to have. 
And, and at that day, most of the communities didn't have multiple synagogues. Like there wasn't a first synagogue and a second synagogue or a Trinity synagogue or a world outreach synagogue or a harvest time synagogue. There was just like a synagogue that served the community. They would have one that served. And so if you're the leader of that, you are in a position of, you've done well. You're in a position of influence. And Jarius would be at the top of the social standing. He's a person of influence and means in that community. Yet what you see is all of his potential money and all of his potential power and influence and connections and status cannot solve his problem. Jarius is desperate. His little girl's on her deathbed. Daddy's done all he can do. Doctors have done all they can do. And he'd heard rumors about a guy named Jesus, that Jesus had done miracles. And so I want you to think about this. He jeopardizes his status. He puts his position at risk. And the Bible says in verse 22 that he fell at the feet of Jesus. Desperation. Desperation will cause us to do some crazy things. Verse 24, Jesus went to him, went with him. And all the people followed, crowding around him. And a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. She'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. She'd heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and she touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. She could feel it in her body that she'd been healed of this terrible condition. So now we meet the second, second character in this story as it develops. So Jesus is going with Jairus to his dying daughter. They're headed, they're en route to this guy's home. But on the way, something happens. Jesus is pushing through the crowd, and I'm sure Jairus is kind of hurrying him along and trying to help him. This way, Jesus, this way to my house. Well, it's not much further. Come on, come quickly, Jesus. There's not much time. She's really, really sick. Hurry, Jesus. And then, bam, Jesus feels the power of God just flow out of him. And it was a desperate woman who touched his garment. Jairus was a man of means, a man of status. But the character of this story is anything but that. Like she comes from the opposite side of the wealth spectrum. This is, this is a story of, of two different social standings. It's about as opposite as it goes. Two people both needing something from Jesus and they come from opposite ends of life, from opposite ends of social standing. Jairus, who didn't lack for anything. He was a person of influence. All we know about him is his position, but you can make a lot of assumptions about that. But we have an unnamed woman. We don't even know her name. History would record her as the woman with the issue of blood. And I don't, I don't want to be graphic, but for 12 years, her menstrual cycle would not stop. Mark 5, 26, it said she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she'd spent everything she'd had to pay them. She'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. So we know that she was poor. It says she had spent everything she had. We don't know if she's married, but in her physical condition, even if she was married, there was no physical relationship at least for 12 years. Her 12 years of constant bleeding meant that she was considered by the Jewish culture she was unclean. Let me show you in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Chapter 15, 
ladies, you're welcome. Like, that's not a thing anymore. Whenever a woman has her menstrual period, she is ceremonial unclean for seven days. Hashtag thank you Eve. You know what I'm saying? Like she brought this on. If you want, you can read other restrictions. Ladies, you know, when you go through that blessed week of that, right? In their culture, it meant for seven days, you were just stuck at home. You were unclean. She basically was the equivalent of a person who had a skin disease called leprosy that was incurable. She was unclean. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't go into crowds. She couldn't hold a job. And whatever money she could come up with, she spent every bit of it chasing a cure for her disease. And she was no better. Matter of fact, she was worse. She was constantly anemic. She did not feel well. She was always exhausted, always tired. She was a social outcast and she couldn't join in normal social activities. In the eyes of the community, she was cursed by God. There must be something that God is punishing you for. And if it's not you, maybe it's your parents. It's something in your lineage that God is punishing you for. So after 12 years of being an outcast, after 12 years of defeat, after 12 years of praying and not getting an answer, you can almost read between the lines of the story. If God had cursed me in her mind, she's thinking, why would Jesus heal me? You know that it settled into her emotions. You know it played on repeat in her mind. I'm cursed by God. I'm cursed by God. I'm cursed by God. So she didn't even feel like she could ask Jesus to heal her because she wasn't even supposed to be out in public to begin with. We can assume, the Bible doesn't say it, that she potentially dresses in a disguise and she works her way through a crowded street thinking if I can just touch his garment. A minute, I'm gonna tell you why she thinks that. Verse 30, Jesus realized at once that healing power had come out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my robe? And his disciples said, really? Look around at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who'd done it. Verse 33, then the frightened, walk that word, frightened. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him. And she told him what she had done. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith made you well. Go in peace because your suffering is over. I almost titled this message, Stealing a Healing, because that's what, she, that's what she felt like she had to do. Because of her condition, she, she couldn't have a face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus. She couldn't, specifically a rabbi, I don't want to make him unclean. And so she, she was trying to steal a healing. Her plan was just to sneak through the crowd and touch the hem of his robe without Jesus noticing before the crowd recognizing her. And then she could just kind of slip away into the crowd and, and sneak off. But she was caught. Who, who touched me? Who touched me? <laughs> Probably Peter. As you get to know Peter, the character that he is, really, Lord? A crowd this size, people are pushing and shoving. There's always crowds, Jesus. You're always attracting crowds. It's nonstop pushing and pulling and shoving. Excuse me. Oh, people are always touching me. And by the way, Jesus, I'm a germaphobe. If you could heal that, that'd be great. And you say, who they all touched you, Jesus. And in her attempt to escape, the woman stopped dead in her tracks. 
because she knew she'd been caught. She better fess up and face her consequences. And to her amazement, Jesus was not angry. Jesus was not frustrated. Jesus was not mad. Jesus was not disappointed. Jesus was impressed. He called her daughter, not, hey, lady, not ma'am. He uses this enduring, possessive term of belonging and says, daughter. By the way, you, you think it was my robe, but Jesus clarifies it. No, 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 no. Your faith made you well. It was your desperation that caused you to push through the crowd. It was your desperation that caused you to care less about the social pressure or the cultural standings. It wasn't the fabric. It was your faith that set you free. What a cool story. What a cool story. A broke. She spent everything she had. A desperate woman at the bottom of life, nowhere else to turn. She finds her way to the feet of Jesus and her faith is what led to her freedom. Such a powerful story. You kind of forget about Jarius. The, door, the, the story doesn't say this. The story at this point is just kind of focused on the healed woman and Jesus is talking to her. But I kind of like to put their shoes on. I kind of like to, to feel their pressure. I'm not talking about putting the woman's shoes on, just to clarify, but I kind of like to put myself in the scene and, and imagine what's going on. This story, I kind of went there for a little bit and it's probably best that I not. Because if I'm Jarius in this story, like this don't go well. Let's, like, can we just be real in a minute? Like we from America. <laughs> if we're Jarius in this story, there's a lot of us that would be tempted to say, are you kidding me? Come on, Jesus, we gotta go. My daughter is on her deathbed. Yes, a lot of people bumped you. Jesus, this way, we must be going. Would you come on? Jesus, you stop for this, you stop for her. I know her, Jesus, don't talk to her. Now you're unclean, Jesus. She shouldn't even be here. Jesus, don't you know who I am? Apparently, you may not know this, Jesus. I'm a really big deal. The story doesn't paint the picture of the annoyance of Jairus. And maybe he wasn't. But if I put myself in his shoes and my kid is on their deathbed and here's the guy that can help and something like this stopped him, I'm gonna lose my stuff. Maybe Jairus was kind and compassionate. I'd like to think I would be. Oh no, please take your time, Jesus. It's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. I know you can do anything, Jesus. My daughter's just on her deathbed. It's fine. There's no hope, no medicine. The doctors can't help. We've done all that we can do. Take your time. It's fine, Jesus. You want to go ahead and feed the crowd while you're here? That's great. You want to cast a few demons out? There's a section over there they need it. Go ahead, Jesus, just preach a long sermon. It's fine, I'm fine, you're fine. If I'm Jairus in this moment, I'm losing my stuff. And that's the beauty of this story. It brings a man at the top of societal standing and it brings a woman who is at the bottom of life and they're two desperate people, two hopeless people and it puts them at the feet of Jesus. By the way, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
at some point you and I will find ourselves in the same place of desperation. Maybe you've already been there. Money can't fix it. Social status is completely irrelevant. Doctors can't help you. There is no place to go but to God. And Chuck Swindoll describes it this way, that desperation is a gift from God. I think Chuck is harsh. <laughs> but desperation does things inside of us. The pressure does things inside of us. And it does things that we are incapable of doing on our own without the pressure. It makes us do things that we probably ought to do, probably should do, but it's the desperation, it's the pressure that causes us to break through some barriers. Two desperate people, one had it all, one had nothing at all. The first thing I want you to see is that desperation reduces pride. When you are desperate, you will do things you normally would not do and you don't really care who's looking because you're desperate. You normally do some things you wouldn't do, but because it's outside of who we are, like it's outside of our comfort zone or it's outside of my personality. When you're desperate, all of that becomes minimal. All that matters is getting help. Getting to Jesus becomes the mission. I don't care what people think of me. Jesus, heal my child. I don't care if I lose my status. I don't care if I lose my position. Jesus, help me. Desperation causes you and I to do things we normally wouldn't do. It causes us to make quick decisions. It causes us to do things. And here, out of the beauty of that, this is what we discover. We find out that we can do more than we ever thought we could. We discover our limitations really are only in our mind. That personality that you've let rob you for years, desperation will show you it's not as big a deal as you've told yourself. You can do that. You can be more. That thing that you've been saying, oh, that's not for me. I can't do that. I'm not wired that way. Desperation will put you in a place you have no other choice and it will prove the lies wrong that are in your mind. Maybe that's why Chuck calls desperation a gift from God is we see humility be replaced with skepticism. I said that wrong. We see humility replace skepticism. In a moment of survival, in that moment of intense pressure, desperation will cause me to do things, to think things I normally don't do, and it brings down the pride in my life. I don't care who sees me, just need you, Jesus. So number one, it reduces pride in our lives. Number two, desperation produces dependence. It brings us to our end. It reveals our own powerlessness. We have no choice but to trust him. I can't, I've done everything. I've spent everything. I have no choice but to trust you, Jesus. By this point in the story of Mark, there's already been a several kind of confrontations between Jesus and the religious elites. The Pharisees and, and the, the kind of the Jewish religion scholars, Right? And Jairus, the, the leader of the synagogue, he was the benefactor of that lifestyle. He was an important person in that Jewish religion, in that system, right? And if he were to become a follower of Jesus, he would lose it all. He knew the risk. 
He knew the consequences and he falls at the feet of Jesus anyway because the doctors couldn't fix his little girl. The religious system couldn't fix his little girl. Matter of fact, there's a good chance the religious elites only offered accusations that God's mad at you. You've sinned. You've done something wrong and God's punishing you for something. And Jerry's had no place else to go but to the feet of Jesus knowing it would cost him everything. As for the unnamed woman with the issue of blood, she had nothing to lose. She'd already spent everything. She'd already lost everyone in her life. She was at the lowest place in life. There was no one left to turn to but Jesus. Desperation puts you in a place and I in a place we have no choice but dependence on Jesus. Amen, everybody? Look at verse 35. While he, that he is Jesus, while he's still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. You don't need to trouble Jesus anymore. But Jesus overheard them. He's talking to the unnamed woman. He overheard them, and he said to Jairus, almost probably with a smile and a wink, I got you. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and he wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John. And when they, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion, weeping, and wailing. Third thing I want you to see is desperation builds my faith. There's a couple of keys that we're gonna unlock in these passages here. The desperation builds my faith. He, he finishes this woman, sends her on her way. He goes, he tells, hey, don't worry, buddy, we're good. And then he goes on and he gets to the house and there's weeping and wailing and carrying on. And, and, and Jesus steps into this moment. So he's clear to the woman with the issue of blood. It, it wasn't the fabric, it was your faith that healed you. Her desperation caused her to push through the crowd. It was her faith that made her well. But Jesus is standing there talking to her and they, they say, hey, it's, it's too late and he says, just, just have faith. This is what he does, verse 39, when he arrives and deals with what I'm gonna call the naysayers. He went inside the house. What's all the commotion? What's all this weeping? The child is not dead. She's only asleep. Verse 40, the crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. These this crowd that's here that's gathered at this house is, is professional mourners. It was, a, it was a funeral thing you did in their society. It was a way of telling the community our family's grieving. It's a way of announcing that someone in our family has died. So you would pay people to come to your house and weep and wail, okay? And so Jesus walks into this room with all these paid wailers. And he says, hey, she's not dead. She's only asleep. In verse 40, he said, they laughed at Jesus. <laughs> You may not know this, Jesus, but we see a lot of death. We're professionals. And, um, and they laughed at him. Jesus, in that moment, listen, listen, listen. Maybe some of you are here today for this right here. Jesus, in that moment, did what you and I need to do in our faith journey sometimes. In those times of desperation, in those moments of difficult times, Jesus made them leave. Like, we don't need to be around naysayers when we're going through a crisis. We don't need to be around naysayers when we're going through a battle. 
Like Jesus didn't need their faith. He didn't need their prayers. He didn't need their power. He didn't need their approval. Truth be told, he could have won the whole room over. He could have made believers out of all of them. He says, oh yeah, well, hey, y'all watch this. And like, bam, she comes. No, 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 no. He didn't. He's like, y'all just go on. Professional naysayers will always find the negative. That's what they do. They're professionals at it. And when you're in a battle for your marriage, you need to get off the phone with your friend girl that's been through a divorce who wants to complain about your husband. When your kids are acting all kinds of crazy, you don't need to be on Facebook. You need to get yourself in the Facebook. I got one more. No, I'm just kidding. And when the going gets tough, get yourself around people of faith and step away from the naysayers. Verse 41, holding her hand, he said to her, Talithia kum, like boom, with K, kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up, walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Can I get an amen? Two desperate people. Money can't solve their problems. Doctors can't fix their pain. Medicine is of no avail. Daddy's money is absolutely powerless. Two desperate people. Status means nothing. It simply boiled down So let me show you something that's kind of cool that's going on here. Why would a desperate woman think to herself, I just need to touch the hem of his robe? So what you're gonna see, I believe this woman was a woman of the word, which is testimony that we all need to be up in that Bible on the daily. Can I get an amen? So in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22, there's just one verse that God gives instructions. He says, you need to hang four tassels on the corners of your clothes. And the word tassel there is the word kanaf. K-A-N-A-P, but the P would sound like an F. Kanaf. Just in, in Deuteronomy 22, it just says, you need to have those four tassels hanging on your clothes. He doesn't explain why there, but later on in the book of Numbers chapter 15, he does explain the tassels. In the bottom part of Numbers chapter 15, towards the end of the chapter, he goes in and he says, you need to hang these four tassels, these four kanafs, and he says they do two things. The first thing that they do is they remind you to obey God. Like everyone, you're walking, every time that kanaf, every time that tassel hits you, ooh, I need to remember to obey God. Like when I was growing up, the thing was either like write a note on your, on your hand or remember the tie a string around your finger? I mean, that was the thing, like you tie a string around so sometimes at night, when my mind starts to shut down and, and kind of processes through the day emotions and like right before I go to sleep, I'll remember something I've got to do. This happened last night. Remember something I got to do. And so typically, like back years ago, I would, there's stuff right here beside my bed. And so sometimes I would like just take a book and I would just kind of throw the book out in the middle of the floor so that when I wake up in the morning, I would see the book and go, oh yeah, I need to do the thing. Sometimes I forgot what the thing was, I just remembered the book was there, right? And so sometimes I would, I would take this book and boom, and Jerry would almost be asleep. Wah! 
there's axe murderers in the house. It's just me and the book again. You and that stupid book. Now, I just get my phone and I either send myself an email or I text myself and I hit send and then get out of the text messaging app so that it'll, bing, you have a new text message. And then I go to sleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, I look at my phone and I go, oh, I've got a text message. Oh, it's from me, delightful. And I, you know, I just start my day with myself. It's, happened last night. It's a reminder, remember. They would walk around in these four tassels hitting their legs, remember today to obey God. The second purpose of the tassels also found, Numbers chapter 15, would be to remember that God is good and faithful. Obey him because God is good. In fact, you're in a tough spot today. That tassel there, that kanaf is to remind you that God is faithful, okay? So I wanna take that, but now I wanna give you a secret little verse that's tucked away in the Bible and it's gonna teach you how to be a millionaire. No, it's not that verse, but it is. It's in the book of Malachi chapter four. A little bit, and by the way, I am not smart enough to come up with this on my own. Y'all just need to know that, all right? Malachi chapter four, verse two. And there's this verse that the prophet Malachi says, he says, but for you who fear my name, the Son, capital S, S-U-N of righteousness, that's referring to the Messiah that was to come, for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. I don't, I don't get, I don't, I don't get it. I'm confused, right? Well, funny thing about that word wings. Would you believe? It's the word kanaf. K-A-N-A-P. So you have a woman, remember she was afraid in fear and trembling, fell at the feet of Jesus, and she was standing before the son of righteousness. She was standing before the Messiah. She knew the promise found in Malachi chapter 4-2 that with fear if she could just touch the kanaf of the Messiah, there would be healing there. He wasn't angry, mad, he wasn't disappointed. He called her daughter. 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 That's a, a term of endearment. That's a term of belonging. You're part of my family. And if some of you might, might want to argue with it, it's okay. I think in this moment, I think, I think Jesus saved her. Well, what about the cross? Listen, look at the gospel in its entirety. Look at God in his whole and his fullness. Look at the gospel from God's perspective. He welcomed her and he called her daughter. He saved her. He healed her. And he set her free. Those who fear my name, the son of righteousness, the Messiah, will rise with healing in his kinoff. Just have to touch it. Just have to touch it. Just have to touch it. He saved you, he healed her, and he set her free. I wonder today in a room this size, does someone need that today? Does someone need Jesus to, with that term of endearment, welcome you into the family? Son, no, he's not mad, he's not angry, he's not frustrated. He would stop whatever he's doing just to have a moment with you so that he might invite you into his family. And here's the truth, we're all desperate. The Bible says that all 
All have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And the wage, the consequence of that sin is death, both in this life, but in the eternal life to come. And I don't care what you've seen on TikTok. I don't care what you think or whatever. Some professor taught you heaven and hell are real. And what you do with moments like this determine if you're going to spend eternity in heaven, in paradise with Jesus, or you're going to burn and spend eternity in torment While you were dead and stuck in that sin, Jesus gave his life. The one and only begotten Son of God gave his life. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, I'll go. I'll shed my blood. They nailed him to a cross. They put a spear in his side. His blood was shed so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Romans would tell us that if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's that son of righteousness. If you believe in your heart, God supernaturally raised him from the dead. There didn't have to be a Jesus to call him out. He had the ability in himself. That meant he was powerful. He was divine. He was the son of God that he raised from the dead. If you believe that, then you will. Not maybe, not might, not can. You will be saved. Have you ever done that? I want to lead you this morning in a prayer. Confess and believe. There's no magic words. Oh, what if I don't? No, 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 no. It's, it's not a magic chant or a formula. It's just a prayer of sincerity. We're going to surrender. And this prayer is the best way I know how for you to confess me. You ready? All across this room, nobody moving around, every head bowed, every eye closed. You're here today, and you know you're not right with the Lord. You know you're not a son or a daughter, but you want to be. You know you need to be. You know you need to. And believe. I'm just going to lead you in a prayer right there at your seat. I'm going to invite you just to pray this prayer. You ready? Just pray this. Say, dear Heavenly Father, right there, just, dear Heavenly Father, do it. I come to you today. I sure need you. I made a lot of mistakes. And I don't want that life anymore. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Would you save me? Make me a new person? I may not understand all of this. But today, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed. I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise you're not going to have to walk the aisle. I'm going to pray for you. So we'll pray for you. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed. If you pray that prayer with me today, come on, boldly slip your hand up real high. Anybody here today, pray that prayer with me. Come on, lift them up. Spirit of the living God, we pray for hundreds of people to give their life to Christ through the mission and ministry, through trips like what our students were on this past week. Father, we want to see hundreds of people saved. Lord, and I want us to be a church of desperation, not out of crisis. Lord, could we get there and, and not have to get to the end of ourselves and, and not to have our children on their deathbed and, and, and not have to battle with disease? Lord, what if? What if we just surrendered ourselves? What if we just became hungry for more of you? What if we just became desperate for your presence? What if we just became desperate for revival? God, we want to be that people. Because we know when we're desperate for you, it'll do things in us that we won't do for ourselves. God, I sense your spirit calling us to a new place of desperation for you. In the beautiful and matchless name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody says, come on, give God the biggest praise you got this morning. Amen, everybody. Amen.
I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.